Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 Festival podcast, the adventurous keynote with Robin Davidson, proudly presented by Kathmandu. We opened the festival with an incredible speaker who perfectly embodies our adventurous theme. At the age of 27, Robin Davidson walked 3,000 kilometres alone across the Australian desert with a dog and four camels. She became instantly famous and then she wrote Tracks, an international bestseller, published in 20 languages, never out of print and made into a Hollywood feature film in 2013. That success launched an extraordinary career as a writer, explorer, filmmaker and cultural commentator. In this event, Davidson relived the journey of Tracks and what she learnt from it. Thank you everyone for coming. Kia ora, it's lovely to be here, my first trip into New Zealand. Thank you for that lovely introduction and particularly for that welcome to country. Obviously, I am the lunatic about whom that film was made. Uh, it pretty much sums up what I did. Uh, I walked a very long way when I was a young woman across the Australian deserts on my own with some camels and a dog. <clears throat> Now, the second thing that people tend to say when they discover this about me is, oh, you are so courageous, so fearless. You've done something I'd love to have done, but could never have done. Well, I'm here to tell you that if that Robin Davidson, as she was then, could do what was necessary to get herself across a desert, then truly anyone can do anything. The theme of our festival is adventure. And it's a word, of course, that carries the assumption of courage. But the truth is, I am terrified pretty much every minute of my waking life and sometimes even when I'm asleep. Um, but it's never stopped me doing anything. And then, too, adventure can be located in the most ordinary of circumstances. We don't have to... Uh, across a desert, a literal desert, in order to find out what we're made of. Uh, all we have to do is step a little outside the boundaries that um, have been set up for us, either by society or sometimes family, most importantly by our own inner voices. <clears throat> that is true for everybody, but it's true for women, I guess, in a particular kind of way, because we've internalised um, ideas about ourselves that can really limit how, um, how we perform in the larger world um, and, and what we can expect and demand of our fates. <clears throat> so what is bravery for a woman? Well, for me, it involved not wanting to be just a woman. I wanted to be a person, a fully participating, equal, self-generating human being. However... I was an extremely, I think extremely, clueless young woman when I made that decision with my life to go to Alice Springs. Uh, but I knew that I'd, I'd never know really what my strengths and abilities might be until I'd uh, sort of pushed through some invisible wall into a better and larger way of being. Oops, sorry. Um, so that's the second thing uh, people say. The first almost always is why. Why did you do this crazy thing? And that always strikes me as such a bizarre question because it was a wonderful thing to do. It was beautiful, it was challenging, 
and it opened all kinds of pathways for me that would not have been available had I not uh, taken that initial risk. So the question really is, uh, why don't we do fabulous, interesting, beautiful things with our lives more often? Um, why do we agree, agree to stay in our little paddocks and behave? Um, what are the forces keeping us there and what does it take to get out? <clears throat> well, I'm going to talk you through how I did it um, and try to convince you of how easy it was ultimately. <laughs> I mean, it's true, I might have died, this is true. Um, but we're all going to do that anyway, and frankly, you're as likely to die crossing a street as you are crossing a desert, assuming, of course, that you have done your homework, that if you've prepared yourself, uh, you've done the groundwork for, um, for success, and that you've understood the environment that you're in. So, how did it all come about? Well, in my early 20s, I knew I had to do something with my life. It had to be big and private and very personal um, in order to kind of pull myself together, I guess. Uh, I wasn't sure what I knew, only that I needed to do it on my own with no one else involved. Now, I'm sure the drive behind it was that universal human drive, um, the great pursuit for meaning. Um, and I think I was helped in that by my era. It was the late 60s, early 70s, um, a time when young people in particular were challenging the status quo in all kinds of ways. Um, there was nothing as important as freedom, and being free inevitably involves some sort of risk. So in my own case, I threw everything up, and I took the train to Alice Springs with $6 in my pocket. And this idea that I would enter the vastness of the desert alone. Now, obviously, with $6, I couldn't even conceive of purchasing a vehicle. But I knew there were wild camels out there. And I thought, they're free. I'll just somehow find myself some and head for the horizon. Uh, I don't know how much you all know about camels in Australia. They were introduced in the mid-19th uh, century to um, build the infrastructure in the desert, the roadways, the railways, the overland telegraph system. They came from what is now Pakistan, and they were brought in with their handlers, who came to be called Afghans, although they weren't necessarily from Afghanistan. Um, and when they had done all of that work, the camels, um, and there was obviously nothing left for them to do, their handlers let the camels go, assuming that would be the end of them. But in fact, the camels had found Easy Street, and from the original 10 to 15,000 that were brought in, there's now roughly a million feral camels out there, and unfortunately doing quite a bit of uh, damage. Uh, poor old camels, they've had a bad press, um, but I promise you they are the most rewarding animals, incredibly intelligent, witty, very witty animals. Um, funny and naughty and adorable, very patient, um, but being essentially undomesticated animals, they are difficult to train, and of course if they're trained badly, then, then they can be dangerous. So, <laughs> not only did I have to acquire wild camels and train them, um, I was also going to have to build all my gear and equipment, uh, learn how to survive in a desert, and learn a thousand skills for which I was singularly ill-equipped. 
But first of all, I was going to have to toughen myself up. And Alice Springs in those days was ideal place for doing that. <laughs> it was a real frontier town. Um, uh, land rights legislation had just come in, um, so there was a very predictable uh, backlash. There was a small Ku Klux Klan operating there. Police brutality was extremely common. Uh, the night I arrived, uh, an Aboriginal bloke was found in a gutter painted white. Um, initially, I got a job in the pub, the only pub, and within a week of being there, I was nominated by my clientele as the next town rape case. Um, and I never know whether to tell this story, but I will tell it anyway. Um, one night, I went back to my little cot in the back of the pub, and there, nestling on my pillow, was this large, fresh lump of human excrement. So, yeah, toughening up. Um, I had never met an Aboriginal person at that point. I was a typical urban Australian, um, but I was very interested in Aboriginal culture. I'd read about their culture much as I'd read about the Greeks. I wasn't an anthropologist, but um, I was certainly hoping to be with them on their own terms, if possible, and learn from them. Uh, as I said, it was very important that I do this thing on my own, but I did allow one companion, my wonderful dog, Diggity, but a bit more of her later. So I hunted around uh, Alice Springs uh, looking for people who knew anything at all about camels, <clears throat> and generally I was either laughed at or occasionally threatened. Eventually, I came across this wildly eccentric Austrian who lived on the outskirts of town. He was running a little uh, camel tourist business. His name was Kurt Posel. And while it was immediately evident that Kurt was barking mad, um, it was also evident that he was a kind of genius with his animals. So I accepted his offer to work for nothing for a year, seven days a week, up at four every morning, um, on the understanding that at the end of that year, he would give me two camels of my choice. And frankly, after the pub, those terms didn't seem so bad. Predictably, at the end of that time, Kurt reneged on the deal, so I was back at square one. <clears throat> but not quite at square one, because I had learnt such a lot. Um, Kurt, uh, mad as he was, he was, a, he was fantastic at training not just the animals, but training me. Um, consequently, I was completely fearless around the animals. I could gallop them bareback down a creek and, you know, pick up their legs, crawl under their bellies. I was very confident with the animals. Um, luckily, there was another camel man in town, and that's him, Sali Mohammed a descendant of the original Afghans who'd brought the camels into the country. And uh, Sali said, Girlie, anyone who can put up with Kurt Posell for a year deserves a break. You come and work for me and you'll get your camels. So Sali was bringing in wild camels to sell into Arabia as meat herds. So while with Kurt I'd learnt the finesse of training, with Sali it was the real rough and tumble. I mean, I've still got a huge lump on my leg where a wild camel tried to kill me by crushing me against a tree. Um, when they're crossed, they're kind of like windmills with teeth. 
Um, but Sally, dear Sally, was good to his word, and some months later, um, I got two of his camels, which I took home and proceeded to train. It took another several months after that, um, many stories, um, but eventually, at last, I acquired all the camels I needed, and here they are. These are the real heroes of this story. Uh, Dookie on the right, Bubby, Zelika the cow, and her calf, Goliath, who was born just before the journey began. Um, I mean, I loved them all equally, of course, as one does, but if Dookie had been a bloke, we'd be married. <laughs> so all in all, I was in Alice Springs for about two and a half, three years, something like that, uh, during which there were countless setbacks. Um, it wasn't that I didn't get despondent about the setbacks, but all of those failures really forced me to be constantly on my toes finding new strategies. And in retrospect, of course, that's what gave me the groundwork for the success of the journey. I mean, as I said before, it's great to take off on adventures, but preparation and groundwork are really what it's all about. Um, learning the environment, essentially, and learning the skills necessary to that environment. <clears throat> one of the many things I had to learn was how to be a vet. Now, one expects camels to be hardy creatures, but at least mine were terrible hypochondriacs. <laughs> they always seemed to have something wrong with them. Uh, so I had to get over, for example, my profound needle phobia and throw these huge hypodermics into their necks and veins and wounds and... Uh, uh, and at one point, I had to castrate the two bulls without anaesthetic. Uh, the thing is that I was so busy looking after my camels and myself that I didn't have time to think too much about the actual journey. That was sort of safely off in the distance somewhere. Until one morning, I got up to find that my camels had done a runner. I tracked them for a week, no camels. And that was the moment at which I might have caved into fear, because now I had the perfect excuse. I could go home and forget the whole stupid idea. But a week later, I did indeed find them. Um, they were very shamefaced and willing to come home. Um, and that was the point, at, really, at which all of me decided to cross the desert. Um, and I'd realised that I'd come that far by not allowing myself to think too far into the future. It really was just step by step, sort of, so I didn't get spooked by what I was attempting to do. So having um, realised that I was actually going to do this thing, I now had a whole new set of problems to solve, principally how to get some money. I just didn't have enough money to buy essential equipment like uh, handmade water canteens, rifle, maps, compass, and so on. So I sold the only commodity I had at the time, um, which was my soul. Which is where Rick Smolin comes into the story and mucks everything up, basically. Um, he was... Um, New York Jewish boy in town doing a photo shoot for Time magazine. And he saw me cleaning windows, and we got to talking. And uh, he said, oh, you must write to National Geographic in America, and they'll fund you. But of course, that will require uh, a photographer being involved, and he was available, so... 
Uh, and I knew it was the wrong thing to do. I so knew. Um, but it, it seemed to me that I didn't have a choice. Um, but I was capitulating um, and, and doing this thing that I swore I wouldn't do, which was being responsible for another uh, person um, rather than just myself. And, of course, I lied to myself as well. I thought, oh, well, he'll hardly ever be, be there. You know, he'll come out maybe twice for a day or two. It'll make no difference whatsoever. So I sold my soul to National Geographic for $4,000, and the trip was on. Now, one of the things I noticed was that people were sort of falling in love with me, and I swear it wasn't anything to do with me. People were, were really quite... Um, moved or exercised by the romance of what I was doing. And this was certainly true of Rick. So when he looked through the lens, that's what he saw. And that's what I actually looked like. <laughs> Seriously over-identified by then. Um, so dear Rick, he'd come out to photograph the farewell. <clears throat> and I realised then how inexperienced he was. Uh, he'd gone to a camping store and they'd seen him coming and they'd sold him the whole shop, including, if you can see it, a rubber dinghy. <laughs> and I said, Rick, you're going to be in a desert. Why would you need a rubber dinghy? And he said, well, they told me there'd be flash floods. <laughs> so it was only going to be two weeks before I'd have to see Rick again. Um, and that was far too soon from my point of view. But National Geographic required photos of Uluru, of Ayers Rock. I assume you all know what that is. Um, and from my point of view, that really was far too soon. So I had this two weeks of um, bliss um, to look forward to before I'd have to see him again. But then it was D-Day, and I experienced the most marvellous exultation, really, as I set off into that glorious desert on my own. It was this enormous burden just lifted off my shoulders. I was very confident, um, confident of my animals, um, of my tracking skills, uh, of the gear I had built. Um, I knew a fair bit about desert bush tucker. I was a pretty good shot. So although I was nervous, it was an appropriate nervousness um, geared to reality. There was nothing sort of neurotic about it, let's say. So I had two weeks of this sustained bliss, and then I arrived at Ayers Rock. I don't know how many of you have been to Uluru, but truly all the tourists in the universe uh, can't take away from it. It's, it's the most mesmerizing place. But um, Rick's camera was omnipresent um, all day, all night, click, 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 and it was driving me around the bend. He even got me to ride around Ayers Rock so that he could take his photos. And if I look grumpy in this picture, it's because I really was. <laughs> now, no question he took stunning photographs, and this does give you a sense of scale. That's me and the camels at the bottom of a cave in, in the face of Ayers Rock. So wonderful photographs, but he'd brought out um, some slides of the farewell, and I was gobsmacked. I said, Rick, you've made me look like a Vogue model. That's not who I am. And it was the first intimation of a, a sort of disquiet about the involvement of the magazine and the photographs, because 
it was as if, because those photographs were really of Rick's journey, not of mine. And in a funny sort of way, they were stealing the trip from me. Um, and instead of being the subject of my own life, which after all is pretty much what the journey was about, I was becoming an object. And it was a most uncomfortable feeling. Uh, Diggity always slept in the swag with me at night, uh, protection against snakes and interlopers. Um, but I was noticing, noticing that she was developing a rather irritating crush on Rick. <laughs> Even Bubby had a crush on Rick. <laughs> or whatever was inside the car that he might want to eat. Um, I was heading due west uh, from Ayers Rock, due west past Katajuta, which is this lovely uh, landform, um, heading straight for the west coast through uh, Pitanjara country. That's a huge, huge section of desert uh, belonging to the Pitanjara nation, and it covers three states, Western Australia, Northern Territory, and South Australia. And I was so looking forward to being on my own again. There'd be no tourists, there'd be no one on the tracks. I'd be completely on my own for a lovely two weeks until the next settlement. But then Rick said, oh, please, please let me come with you. I have to get photos of Aboriginal mob for, for the magazine. What could I do? The daily routine went something like this. Unsaddling 1,500 pounds of baggage, hobbling the camels out to feed, gathering wood, building a fire, boiling the billy, feeding the dog, cooking, checking on the camels, eating, washing up and putting away, rolling out the swag, checking on the camels, then beginning the whole routine at five o'clock the next morning in reverse and walking 20-odd miles. So you can understand that a person might get a bit titchy when there's a bloke around not helping with any of that <clears throat> and just taking photographs. Uh, we weren't long out of Katajuta when the only rain in the entire nine-month journey came down, and it came down in absolute buckets. Um, I was very worried about my animals because they have feet like ball tires and they can skid, which is precisely what happened. Um, my darling Dookie slipped and fell, and it was an absolute catastrophe. He had torn his shoulder... I didn't know how badly, I didn't know really what had happened, uh, but he was in great pain and I had no idea whether he, he'd ever recover and if he didn't recover, obviously I was going to have to shoot him. So we all limped into this tiny little Aboriginal community, Docker River, and it seemed to me that the trip might be over. Uh, Aboriginal kids were always fantastic. Um, and it's great when I go out bush again to visit people. Um, these kids are all grown up now and they talk about, you know, the, the day Kunkka Rama Rama came through. And Kunkka Rama Rama essentially means um, insane girl. <laughs> <laughs> but now when I go out there, they call me desert woman. So, hey, um, it's better than camel lady. But it's lovely for me that my story has become integrated into their story as well. So Rick got his photographs uh, of Aboriginal mob, um, but unbeknownst to me, he had snuck down to the creek bed at night and taken photographs of a, a women's secret ceremony, which, of course, he wasn't meant to do. <clears throat> and people were very cross. 
Uh, they assumed that he was my husband, and so his mistake was also my mistake. So we were personae non grata in the entire community. He had to leave almost immediately for another assignment, but I was there for six weeks, waiting to see if Dookie recovered, and not knowing whether that would happen, not knowing if I was going to continue with the trip, and also feeling this atmosphere of sort of slight mistrust. So when at last I did set out again, I was in a very lowered frame of mind anyway, because um, I could sort of see no meaning in the whole thing. What the hell was I doing this for? Um, and of course, the first night out, three wild bull camels came into my camp and I had to shoot them. And Sally had warned me about this again and again and again. Any wild bull comes anywhere near you, you shoot first, you don't ask questions. Also, I was coming into drought country, and my camels were getting thirsty because there was no green feed for them. So I headed off to a well that was marked on the map, but when I got there, the well was dry. I had another 10 days walking um, to the next well marked on the map, but of course that well might also be dry. And for the first time, I felt the enormity of that desert right in my belly. I was very frightened, and I was very, very small. So 10 days slogging through sand dunes, thinking, will there be water there? Are my camels going to die? Am I going to die? Uh, it was certainly the lowest point in the journey. But again, my way of dealing with it, insofar as I did deal with it, was, OK, if nothing goes wrong in this step, it's unlikely to go wrong in the next step. And just left foot, right foot, keep going. Um, so, here I am, so obviously there was water at the second well, um, and we were all okay. But I was still feeling um, much too raw and vulnerable to want to face other people. But one night in the dunes, I heard an Aboriginal vehicle off in the distance, and you can always tell an Aboriginal vehicle, they sound like washing machines, you know, they're sort of tied together with string and belts. <coughs> And it was three old blokes. Um, they'd spotted my fire in the dunes and came bush bashing over to check me out. And they spent the night with me because they were worried for me. And they said that next day one of them would accompany me to the next settlement, which was about a day, day's journey away. I assumed it would be the one who could speak a little bit of English. But the one I actually liked was um, this little man, Eddie, Mr. Eddie who'd shared his singed rabbit with me. Uh, on his feet, there was one huge Adidas running shoe, and on the other foot was this little pink woman's slipper with a pom-pom. <laughs> um, and in the morning, it was indeed Eddie who pulled in beside me. And he ended up staying with me uh, for a very long way, all the way to Warburton, about a month's journey. No one will ever know why he decided to do that. It was an unprecedented thing. Um, possibly he just recognised a fellow eccentric, I don't know. Um, but it was incredible good fortune for me. Um, he didn't speak a word of English. My Pitanjara was extremely rudimentary. He had lived as his ancestors had for 50,000 years, pretty much. Yet seemingly on a whim, he took this white kunkah along his dreaming which was dingo, 
um, through the Jamison Ranges um, into Western Australia. And being with him really returned the heart of the journey back, sort of gave it a meaning, I guess, returned its substance. <clears throat> so at the next community, uh, I contacted Rick and asked him to meet us in Warburton and to bring a rifle uh, with him as a gift for Eddie. Now, you have to remember this is before GPS, before mobile phones, before satellite phones, any of that nonsense. It was just before the suffocating arrival of social media. And I consider myself extremely fortunate to have ducked under that particular radar. I'm sure that one day it will actually be illegal to get lost. <laughs> um, as we travelled through his country, he would sing to his ancestors his dreamings. Um, it was very, very wonderful to participate in that, um, but entirely natural. It was as natural to him as breathing, the singing as we... He was singing country as we went through. Uh, we gathered food together, witchetty grub, for example, which is very good fried up with garlic. Uh, little bush onions. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff out there. It's like a vast garden, really, the central, central Australia. <clears throat> and he was such a pleasure to be with the old man. Um, and he had those qualities that are typical of old Aboriginal mob. Um, there's a kind of gravitas or uh, a, a kind of self-possession that immediately commands respect. He's very at home in his own skin. Every now and then during the journey, when I was on accessible tracks, the tourists could be a real problem. Um, they were shockers, actually. I mean, they'd pull up, they'd take their photographs, they'd cover us in dust, and then they'd tear off without even offering a, a drink of water. It was a bit like that. Um, so Rick found us on the track just outside Warburton. Um, Eddie didn't approve of Rick or his photos, but he certainly did love that gun. Um, we all parted in Warburton, and I had the Gibson Desert ahead of me, which was supposedly the most treacherous 
part of the journey, but I contemplated it with absolute uh, pleasure. Um, it was to be a month entirely on my own, like nothing and nobody. Um, all the depression had blown away thanks to being with that old fella uh, who taught me such a lot, not least of which was how to just relax into desert time. <clears throat> uh, during that month alone, um, my consciousness actually changed. The wiring got changed. And uh, in some ways, I think it's never changed back. Not entirely, anyway. <clears throat> and I found that as I became more integrated into the desert, I began to see myself less as a separate thing and more as part of a net. Um, everything acted upon everything else. Everything was connected to everything else. Um, and, it, and when you really feel that in your gut as a reality, it's as if the boundary of the self just disappears out into everything, expands out into everything. The paradox being that there I was as remote as it's possible for a human being to be on this planet. But I've never felt so, um, what I would say, at home in the world. Uh, it was the antithesis of loneliness, I'd say. Uh, I'm going to speed it up now, otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, and I do want to leave plenty of time for questions, because that's when we have fun. Um, suffice it to say that towards the end of the trip, uh, someone had contacted the press about me. And suddenly, my name was headlines all around the world. Uh, so I came out of that period in the deep desert to be confronted with journalists and photographers. And my life changed um, forever in the most unpredicted of ways. <clears throat> Oh, what's happened there? That's weird. Oh, I'm sorry. We seem to have lost a... Never mind. Never mind. Uh, thus was born the camel lady, um, which made it seem like I was a kind of hybrid, which was probably not far from the <laughs> truth at that point. Um, but it did have that slightly belittling tone to it. Um, but more importantly to me, it... It felt to me like I was being imprisoned in a category, and it was a category that made no sense to me. But dear Rick was just came good at this point. Um, he decoyed the journalist so, to the wrong place on the coast so that I could head south and reach the Indian Ocean unmolested. Um, I asked him if I could arrive at the beach on my own without him and his cameras, but he looked so crestfallen what could I do? Um, we'd become pretty good friends by then. Um, I had to acknowledge that this was his trip as pretty much as much as my own. Um, and besides that, when you share an intense experience like that with someone, you either murder them and bury them in a dune or you learn tolerance. I think this is my favourite photo in the whole collection, and I always imagine it's Bubby thinking, Christ, she's taken us across half a continent. Is she going to make a swim to Pakistan? <laughs> <coughs> um, leaving the animals, of course, was incredibly painful, but I'd found them, a, just by chance, the most perfect home, so that was that taken care of. And two weeks later, I was in New York City, um, to begin writing the story for National Geographic. And as I wandered down those canyons of glass and steel, I knew I was the only sane person left on Earth. <laughs> um, I shall leave you with one thought, which I wrote in tracks. <clears throat> 
You are as powerful and strong as you allow yourself to be, and the most difficult part of any endeavour is taking the first step, making the first decision. So I hope I've convinced you that the rest is simple tenacity, really, <laughs> and making sure you do the groundwork for whatever it is you want to do or achieve. Uh, you don't have to live inside the stereotype. You don't have to choose safety and conformity above adventure. Uh, and I guarantee you, you are capable of more than you know. Thank you very much. Very happy to take questions. Thank you. Please do ask questions. Thank you very much. You down here? Sorry, where are you? Can't see you. Uh huh. Okay. Hello. Yes. Thank you. It was a wonderful talk. It took Thank me back you. to my youth a little bit, travelling in India. Can you speak um, up a little? Sorry. Oh, sorry. The yeah. Microphone. Is it on? Um, I want to know about the camels. They mm. really fascinate me. I wondered if it's the parents that don't bring them up well that's given them the bad name. No, it's and bad trainers. Bad training. It Meanness. is bad trainers, yeah, yes. Yeah. That's what I mean by the parents. Yes. I don't mean the camels. I mean <laughs> the human being parents. Yeah. Um, and I just wondered if that was the case. Because Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Mm, pleasure. Good. Sorry, hi, Robin. Hi. Uh, is there diggity too? Sorry? Is there another diggity? Uh, or have there been diggities? Well, mm, I won't tell you about diggity in case you read the book, uh, but it's another story. Um, there have been... The most important second diggity was a dog I had in the Himalayas in India, this astonishingly wonderful dog. But I don't have a dog anymore because they are so dependent and I had to leave that dog in India and it... You know, it broke his heart, it broke my heart, so I tend to not have animals anymore. <laughs> but I'd love to. Um, again, about the camels. Yes. Why did you decide on four, and in particular the mother and the baby? That ah. strikes me as a bit of a liability. Yes, well, I had thought so too, but quite the opposite. I needed three simply to carry the amount of water that I needed. Um, and to carry all my equipment and food and so on. So three was necessary. The calf, I didn't know she was pregnant when I got her, the, the cow, Zelly. <clears throat> and I said to Sally, what am I going to do with this bloody calf? And he said, no, it's a good thing because you tie the calf up at night and you can be pretty sure mum's going to come in to feed him in the morning. And, of course, one of the dangers of the trip, um, of that sort of journey, is that the camels take off at night and you can't find them the next day, and then you sunk. Um, however, she did disabuse me of that, the cow, um, once. I lost the camels one night, and I had to track them all day because wild camels had come in and disturbed them and taken them away. Um, and that was way out in the desert, so it was kind of dodgy. Mm. 
Hi, Robin. Um, thank Where you for an amazing Sorry, talk. I'm here. Hi. Yeah, hi. Um, hi. So I'm curious, have you got a daughter? And if you have got a daughter, how would you feel about her... It's such a trick question. Going no, it's actually not. <laughs> it really isn't. I really feel like, you know, now your older self, what would you think about um, a daughter that wanted to go on a trip like that? Well, of course, I'd be as worried as hell, but I'd also be pleased. Um, uh, I mean, the reverse of that is that my dad... You know, I, he was an older dad, um, so I can't remember how old he was when I did it, but, you know, an older man. And my mum had died early on, so there was only him. And, of course, he was terrified, but also just absurdly proud. Um, and, you know, when it was all over, he'd bore people with press clippings. and <laughs> So I think the answer is, you know, we... Part of being a good parent is surely that we um, have to let them go and hope that we have provided enough foundation for them to be able to succeed in whatever they do. And I think, and you know, as I said before, adventure isn't necessarily about crossing a literal desert. It's, it's just being adventurous. Mm. Yes, um, yes. Where Robin, are we? Yes. Um, Christopher here. I read your book many years ago. Uh -huh. um, you reminded me your camel slipped. But did you have any trouble with feet, shins or blisters when you did the, your walk? Um, yes and no. Uh, I only wore sandals, very ordinary old leather sandals. I think I wore out about five pairs altogether on the trip. Uh, I found that sandals were the best uh, uh, footwear because you could just shake the sand and the prickles and things out of them. Um, and my feet were so tough, they were like tree bark. Um, and I'd toughened them up really when I was working for Kurt because Kurt was a monster, as I said, and he made me run around barefoot and there were these huge prickles out there. So I'd get these terrible prickles in my feet. They're like tacks, like standing on a tin tack. Um, but it, it did, my feet just became like, like Aboriginal feet. You know, they were desert feet. Um, so, so I was fine that way. But also what I realised was that after a while, my pain threshold had gone way up and, you know, I'd gouge a big bit of flesh out while I was gathering wood and I wouldn't even notice. You know, you sort of... Uh, and again, it's just part of becoming integrated into your environment in a way. Um, it was necessary, it was necessary to, to be quite tough in that way. Yeah. Uh-huh, hi. Um, I was wondering at what point did you decide to write a book and had you been taking notes from the start or a diary mm. from the start mm. with mm. that in mind? Mm. Look, I'd had no intention about writing about it at all. As I said, it was a very personal, private gesture. And I had assumed that no one would be interested anyway. You know, it's not like uh, I thought that people would want to know all about it. But certainly I had no intention of writing about it. And then the geographic thing was simply a, um, to get money, not that I'd wanted to write a piece. And then what happened <clears throat> was <clears throat> I wasn't entirely pleased with the way Geographic tidied up my piece. Um, so I wrote a longer piece for the London Sunday Times. 
um, you know, trying to get closer to the truth. And a publisher saw that piece and wrote to me and said, would you write a book? Now, at the time, I was having to deal with this new and instant and unexpected and unwanted um, fame, attention, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I didn't trust it or like it. And <clears throat> so I thought, if I write a book, it'll be a kind of focus for people. It'll be like, like throwing a bone to the dogs, and I'll be left alone. Um, and of course, it didn't work out like that. Um, the book became a big bestseller, which again was unexpected. And so the whole thing has sort of gone from, it keeps generating itself over the years. Um, however, I'm very glad now that I wrote Tracks because it took me into a career of writing. Um, so yeah, very lucky. It's a weird way to begin to be a writer, but it worked for me. Um, hi, hi, I'm Michael Marshall. Hi. Um, I'm the son of Chris. He actually walked from John O'Groats to Land's End and top of Scotland to the south of England. So, hence his questions on sins. Um, I was wondering two things. Mm. Um, firstly, um, why did you have this well need to be alone? Mm. Um, because I'm quite a social person. I couldn't think anything really more uncomfortable than being alone for several months. Um, and also, um, ha have you um, got any knowledge on the health or state of Aboriginal languages having travelled through the desert for so long. Aboriginal languages in particular, you mean? Yeah. Mm, okay, yeah. And maybe the different ones, because mm. we know a lot about Māori now because mm. it's a renaissance, but we don't know anything mm. about Aboriginal languages. Mm, yeah. Well, that's very interesting, Aboriginal languages, the whole... Anyway, uh, about being alone, well, I guess I have that sort of temperament where I need my solitude. I think I'm also very uh, people-loving. I love being with people I care about. Um, but I need periods of solitude in order to kind of, I don't know, work out what's going on in that bedlam up there. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's a temperamental thing. Um, also, I was born in the country, so possibly that has something to do with that kind of, uh, uh, you know, children in the country learn how to um, look after themselves and be on their own, I think, better than city kids, maybe. Aboriginal languages, well, that's fascinating, and, you know, there's fantastic linguistic work going on in Australia at the moment, trying to save languages. Um, I, think, I can't remember how many different... I think there was something like 700 separate languages, language groups, and so that's not in, in Australia, in the landmass of Australia. Um, I can't remember how many's left, maybe 100. I'm guessing. Um, but there's this fantastic work going on, reconstructing languages, um, 
it's just amazing work. And dictionaries are being made so that Aboriginal kids can go back uh, to their country and start learning the languages that they've lost. It's a really wonderful thing. Sorry, I can't hear. I, I don't understand. I can't hear. The status of language in Aboriginal society? Oh, in, in contemporary Australian society. It's crazy. So few people learn an Aboriginal language. And I think that's about to change. I think it's, it's not a bad time for in terms of Aboriginal politics in Australia at the moment. I mean, I know it's dire, but, um, but there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of um, work going on to save languages, to save cultural forms. Um, people are interested. Um, <clears throat> so I think that will start to change. And it's something I noticed being in New Zealand. It's so lovely, this, this fluent use of Maori uh, by everybody. It's just great. And you don't find that in Australia, not at all. Hi, Hi, I'm Georgina. Um, Hi. In the film, because I watch it and I absolutely loved it, um, you went to a hut. What was it like? Like the hut. So you went to a hut? The house you went to in the film. Oh. Now you have to remember the film is not the book. <laughs> um, the hut. Oh, I know where it was. Because it, in terms of the film, I only went out twice to, to, to be with people on set, right? Um, but I did go out to that set, and it was in South Australia somewhere. So not somewhere that, was, that actually happened in real life. It was, it was a loca what they call a location. Um, yeah. But did you have one in real life? Well, I lived, when I uh, was in Alice Springs, I lived in a pile of stones, essentially, uh, this roofless old building. Um, and it had a sort of half a bit of a roof and it was just falling down and there were deadly snakes that went, uh, you know, they'd leave un from under my bed in the morning and come back under my bed at night. <coughs> and Diggity was great with them because she'd... She, she had this particular snake vibrato that would alert me when there was a snake around. Kia ora, Robin. Um, I just wanted to thank you um, up the back here. Oh, oh. Um, one, one of the most pertinent things I think you've said for me was about um, breaking through the, the invisible wall. And I thought that it was um, really um, relevant to today's society and struggle and, and stuff. Mm. And um, I think you mentioned as an antidote to that, you know, um, up on your quote here, um, realising that, you know, you're as powerful and strong as you want to be. Yeah. And I think um, your comment earlier too about, you know, possibly becoming illegal to do this kind of adventure. <laughs> I'm wondering in today's society mm. um, what your commentary or thoughts are on um, the need to enact this and how we're then enabled to exercise that kind of freedom with all the struggles that we're coming up against? Yeah. It's an unanswerable question. I mean, I think it's just increasingly important, it's becoming more and more important that we 
somehow in these noisy, busy, fast, crazy, fractured, demanding lives that we carve out some time for thinking, for real contemplation about life. Because it seems to me that the whole thrust of, of modern, of our world is about, uh, is about distraction and people who are distracted are easy to control and it's all about shopping. Um, hi, I, I'm interested in the compromise of your trip, which you obviously alluded to when you were talking about the tolerance you had to have for the photographer, because obviously you were not then traveling alone, which was part of, part of your plan. Um, obviously, you had to finance the trip, but um, yeah, just that difficulty when you've got somebody in such close proximity. It was quite different with Eddie, obviously, but... Mm. But um, just if you could elaborate a wee bit more on that. On Rick's presence, you mean, and the yeah. awkwardness of that. Yeah. Look, it was largely... Um, well, there were several elements to it. One was that I felt I'd sold out. Um, another was that just to having that constant being looked at and being objectified in photographs. I don't mean objectify. I mean that you're constantly conscious of yourself. I guess, and I wanted to be away from all of that. Um, he was in love with me, whatever that means, so that was something I had to deal with. Um, uh, well, it, it's just how it was. I mean, it was something I had to incorporate into what the journey was and what it became. And, of course, in many ways, it was through Rick's photographs that all of this has happened, you know. Um, so assets and liabilities, always. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we're good mates still, so, so no harm done, I'd say. Mm. Hi, Robin. Hi. Can you hear me? Thank you for sharing your story. Sorry. It's so inspiring to hear your story. Thank you for Thank sharing you. it. Oh. I just have a quick question about what it was like going back to um, normal, normal life um, when you finished your journey. <clears throat> and um, what your next adventure was following uh, this one? After that. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, going into the desert required uh, a change, right? <clears throat> but coming out of the desert was much more difficult because that readjustment to what really I could, I thought then was madness. I just thought we were a completely deranged species. species. Um, and, and, you know, the, the advertisements and the billboards and the, I mean, it was just completely bonkers. Um, so that was difficult, but also I had changed at some level. And so there was a part of me that, that was difficult to share with anyone because, you know, there's, there's no one to t really who had shared, who had experienced something similar, I'd say. Yeah, so, hi, yes, Robin. going back into the... The, the normal world was much more difficult in a sense than 
going into the desert. Over here, Robin. Sorry? Over here. Oh, I, haven't, I just wanted to say one more thing. That The next thing was, in, in an effort to escape being the camel lady, I then went to England and sort of had a completely different life in, in London. <laughs> yeah, this time. Yeah. Um, given, if you were to do it again, given all our technology and the, your philosophy on travel, would you, if you were doing it tomorrow, would you take an EPIRB? A what? <laughs> a, a, an emergency beacon. Oh, a beacon. Which means you can be picked up in a day from any difficulty. Look, I and think... If, if and were, if you weren't going to take one, what would be your philosophy on not taking it? Yeah. Look, I think, so, first of all, I wouldn't do the trip again, right? Because it's a different time. We're in a different culture. We're in a different reality. That trip cannot be recapitulated. It would be kitsch. Um, I think that sort of journey can't be made now anyway because of social media, because, you know, you'd, you would expect someone out there to be blogging every day or something. Um, so I think it's just a different, a completely different way of seeing the world. Um, as for taking a beacon, well, there was the equivalent of that at the time. And that is that Rick had brought out a, a radio set, two-way radio set, this great cumbersome thing. And part of it was um, a sort of, to generate the electricity for it, you had to sit on a sort of bicycle and pedal this bicycle. And I said, I am not going to take a, bi a stationary bicycle through the desert. Um, but I ended up taking that stupid two-way ra radio, not the bicycle bit, but just the radio, because of my dad, because he was worried. And it I thought, oh, all right, if it makes him feel better, I'll take it. Now, the irony of that was that the one time, and this was towards the end of the journey, the one time where I really did need the radio, it didn't work. <laughs> and like I said, we're all going to die. There are, you know, just the best way of not dying is knowing your environment, not taking a beacon. <laughs> Robin, hi. In the middle here. Uh, Hi. Uh -huh, gotcha. Um, Robin, I've loved your story. Um, Thank you. And it struck me that sort of half the story has been the photographs. I think that's what brings us with you. And I was interested, when you came back, how much was of, your, of the narration was dictated by the photographs? I imagine there would have been a perception through National Geographic of the story they wanted to tell and also the lens through which it was taken. And yeah. I was interested to see how your story was guided by that, mm. your narration of it. Mm. You mean now, this sort yeah. of talk? Yeah. Um, it's easier for people to have the visuals. Um, and I hope that I talk away, away enough from those visuals for, for both realities to be, uh, to be useful, I guess. But, you know, they're lovely photos. They're beautiful photos. And the weird thing is that... Um, sometimes I think that the photos have sort of invaded my memory and I have to work very hard to really not see the photos but actually try and remember the texture and the feel and the look of where I was because yeah, that's, those that's images do erode me. memory. They certainly do. Thank you. Mm. 
Hi, Robin. Yeah. Over here. Where are you? Where are you? Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Brianna. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned at the beginning about how women tend to um, get ideas in their head that tend to limit them about what women are and who they are. Um, do you think that th that that is getting better for women, like it's getting easier? And do you think that social media is affecting that um, in a positive or negative way? Well, it has to be both, I guess. <laughs> I mean, of course, in many ways, things are much better from, for women. I mean, just from my era, it's better and easier. And when I think of my mother's era, I mean, my mum couldn't even go to a bank or sign a cheque. You know, it's like they had, they had to have a, a husband or a brother or a father uh, validating them for, for the simple transactions of life. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, of course, and, and it does in many ways continue to improve and get better and the discourse is improving and getting better. Um, in other ways, I think that... Uh, well, I suppose that I do sometimes despair about the pressure on young women to conform, to consume, to, be, to have children. Um, it's just this assumption that that's what will give your life meaning, but... And it's great to have children. It's great to have children, but it's also great not to have children. It's great to have the choice. Um, and I think it's really ultimately about that. Uh, it's about being, about having those choices and living a full and rich and productive life. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hi, Robin. I'm down yeah. the front here. So where are you? Bottom, down here. At Thank bottom. you. Yes, Hi. That's right. Hi. Um, how old were you before you started your journey to Alice Springs? Uh, I think I was 23, 23 and a half maybe. Okay. I don't know, it must have been 24. Okay. And I guess my question is because I'm 20 um, and I'm kind of, I guess, going through, you know, the thoughts in my life where I'm trying to figure out what to do at least next. Mm. Um, how did you find that you were approaching that before going into this trip? And did you learn much about what your next step was after the trip or during it? Sorry, say that last bit again. Did so, I learn? Yeah, what did you learn from the trip that helped you to make your next step? Um... I think what I learnt fundamentally was to trust myself um, and that self-proving. And it, again, I would say that you don't have to do something as big as what well. I needed to do that, but other people don't need to do that. Um, it's a matter of... <clears throat> of um, I think it's a matter of, of just understanding that you have all of these possibilities within you and, and capabilities and strengths and you have no idea what they are. And it's not until you actually put yourself out there in the world and are tested that you will find out what they are. And however you do that, whatever your choices are, the principle remains the same, that you push, you push those boundaries um, and you test yourself. You find out what you're good at and not good at. <laughs> I think. Mm. Yeah, one more, one more question, folks. There's a lady here. There's a lady. Mm. 
Thank you for such inspiring words. Thank you. What interests me is the fulfillment that came to you early in your life relative to most lives. Mm. And I'm wondering about your approaching your old age mm. and how does that... Well, I wonder about that for myself, so I presume it's a universal. It's a universal. So I'm wondering, <clears throat> does that enormous fulfilment and understanding of yourself carry you well into your olden day, your olden days? It's a good question. Depends w which day you ask me. <laughs> And also, you know, it is so true, it's not for sissies. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Lovely audience. Thank you very much.